0: Here's another inspiring message from Northside Community Church, Sydney. So Shakespeare said it first Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name, or if thou wilt not, be but sworn my love, and I'll no longer be a capulet. Oh, what's in a name? A rose by any other name would still smell as sweet. Good question, Juliet. What is in a name? I mean, we have names for absolutely everything. Without a name, an object does not have an identity. You can't say, pass me the salt, without referring to the salt, calling it what it is. Without saying the name of the item or or the person, you can't communicate, can you? Without my parents giving me a name, how would anyone be able to refer to me or to get my attention? Or if you're my mum, when you're angry with me, say every other family member's name before you get to mine. Lachlan, listen, whatever your name is. Yes, mum. Sorry. Clearly, I need a name in order to be able to communicate. And these days, we're getting more and more elaborate with our names, and the celebrities are the worst. Yeah, There's kids in Hollywood rolling around with names like Apple, Blue Ivy, Elsie Otter, or if you're Jamie Oliver's children, Poppy Honey, Daisy Boo, and Petal Blossom Rainbow. Legitimately, that, those are the names of his children. But really, what's in a name? How important is a name? When we look through the Bible, we can see that a name actually means a lot. People weren't just named after their parents' favorite fruit. Names were often given as representations of hopes and dreams of the parents, Or a recognition of divine assistance or calling. Look at Abraham. His name was originally Abram, meaning exalted father, until God changed it to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. Or Hosea's children, who were named according to God's message of judgment on Israel. These poor kids were literally, like their names literally meant unloved and not my people. That's very specific. The most compelling case for names actually meaning something is God himself. Yes, God has a name. We refer to him as God, but that's more calling him what he is. Like we are human beings, God is God. So God actually has a name. Rob Bell puts it this way. In Hebrew, God's name is essentially four letters. We would say YHVH. But in Hebrew, the letters are pronounced yod, hey, vav, hey. Now, some pronounce the name Yahweh or Yahweh, although in many traditions the name isn't even pronounced because it's considered so sacred, so mysterious, so holy. In fact, the ancient rabbis believed that they were essentially kind of breathing sounds, and that ultimately the name is simply unpronounceable. Because the letters together are essentially the sound of breathing. yod, he, fa, he. Is the name of God the sound of breathing? You just took a breath, didn't you? That's something to pause and think about. God's name is the sound of breathing. And breathing is life. And we can't live without it. So if God would go as far as to give himself a name, a very intentional name that captures who he is, we can see that names are significant. But we don't just have names that our parents give us. We also have names as a way of referring to who someone is to us. For example, mum, dad, sister, brother. When you use those names, you are calling the person by what they are to you. And it's no different with Jesus. Jesus has a name like all of us, and his name means God saves but he also has a myriad of titles or other names that we refer to him. Redeemer, Savior, Friend, Love, Faithful, Perfect, Holy, Glorious, Deliverer, Lord, Prince of Peace, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Shepherd. The list goes on. In fact, there are around 200 names and titles for Jesus. And this past week, we've just been reminded of one of the most powerful names of Jesus and that of that of Saviour. He earned the name Saviour by what he did on the cross. By dying on the cross, he bridged the gap. He made a way for all of us, as broken and as damaged as we are, to step into healing and hope, which is an amazing thing to do. That is a massive sacrifice. And because of that action, we now refer to him as Saviour. It says in Proverbs, above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. So a person's actions overflow from their heart. We can see that what Jesus did on the cross was an overflow of his heart. That's also something to pause and think about. What Jesus did on the cross was an overflow of his heart. I had it said to me recently that the proof of someone's character is in their actions. You can really tell who someone is just by watching what they do. So we can see that we don't just get given a name or through external circumstances receive a title, but, we, by, but what we do also can earn us a name. Turn with me, if you've got your Bibles or smartphones, Matthew, to Matthew 16, 13 to 16, it'll be on the screens as well. I think that if it had actually been me in that situation with Jesus and Jesus had said to me, who do you say I am? I would have gone, duh, Jesus. But I would have been completely missing the point of the question because Jesus isn't asking what his name is. He's asking, who do you say I am? It's an interesting question, isn't it? because Jesus has so many names, so many ways in which we refer to him. And there is great power in referring to Jesus in his various names. It reminds us a forever forgetful, forever doubtful people of who he is or what he has done or what he is to us. So we're going to endeavor to answer Jesus' own question to Peter and ultimately to us. Who do you say I am? Because for some of us here, We call him saviour because we believe he saved us. But we're struggling to call him healer or friend or father or strong tower or hiding place because today we're questioning whether or not he really is those things. We question him as friend because what friend would let their friend suffer the way you feel you're suffering tonight? We question him as father because what father would stand by and let his creation blow each other up? We question him as king of kings because what king would turn a blind eye to the poverty in our world? When it comes down to it, Juliet was actually wrong. There is something in a name. A rose might smell as sweet, but it wouldn't be a rose with a different name. A rose looks a certain way, A rose smells a certain way. A rose grows a certain way. To call it anything else would be redefining what it is. So if that's the case, that you can't call something just any old name because it changes what it is, then let's look at some of the names we have for Jesus and whether or not he truly is what that name embodies. Let's ask ourselves, who do we say he is? Now, with so many names and titles, I'm only going to focus on a couple. I've been quite intentional in the ones that I've chosen to discuss tonight. Because realistically, if we looked at every single name or title that we have for Jesus, we would be here for weeks. Yeah, that's, that's right, Harper. It would be very tiring. I totally agree. That's, a, that's more of a lifetime pursuit. So let's start with healer. There are countless miracles in the Bible of the Lord healing people. But there is one story I want to focus on. And to be honest with you, John Piper tells it better than me, so I'm going to read his very well articulated version. The passage is from Luke chapter 8. Jesus was now a reluctant celebrity, and a crowd was teeming around him as he made his way toward Jairus' home to heal the synagogue ruler's 12 year old daughter. In the crowd was a desperate woman. For 12 years, she had suffered from an embarrassing, debilitating disease. All the medical treatments she sought had bled her savings. Nothing had helped. But as she'd seen Jesus' but she'd seen Jesus's healing power. When he touched people, they were healed. If he could just touch her. However, she had a problem. Her problem was the problem. Everyone who came to Jesus for healing had to tell him, and thus everyone around him, what his or her problem was. Jairus had just done that but a very embarrassing and very personal woman's problem in front of all those men. Even worse, her bleeding made her unclean, which added a deeper level of shame to her embarrassment. But maybe she didn't have to, Maybe Jesus didn't have to know that he touched her at all. What if she touched him? With the mass of people all trying to get close to him, she could quickly touch his cloak and nobody would ever know. She pushed and jostled her way toward the rabbi. The closer she got, the greater the knot in her stomach. His disciples were trying to keep people from grabbing him. Her desperation fueled her determination. Suddenly, there was an opening, and she quickly bent down and swept her hand on the edge of Jesus' cloak. As she straightened up and stepped back, she felt a flash of heat through her abdomen. She knew instantly she was healed, and a flash of shock joy washed over her for about five seconds. Then Jesus stopped. "'and began to search the crowd. "'He looked concerned and said loudly, "'Who was it that touched me?' "'A flash of fear washed over the woman. "'Those closest pulled back from Jesus. "'Everyone looked at everyone else. "'There were various declarations of, "'I didn't do anything.' "'But the woman froze. "'Peter, with some irritation, said to Jesus, "'Master, the crowd surrounds you "'and are pressing in on you. "'For goodness sake, everybody's trying to touch you.' "'But Jesus Still looking said, someone touched me, for I perceive the power has gone out of me. The woman realized she'd been caught. It had never occurred to her that she might be stealing this healing. Meekly, she said, it was me. She stepped back towards Jesus and the crowd parted. In tears, she dropped to her knees in front of him. I touched you, master. And she poured out her shame in front of everyone. Jesus was clearly moved. He leaned toward her and wiped her tears and says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. I could have chosen any number of examples in the Bible to show you that Jesus rightfully owns the title of healer. But this one stood out to me because this woman didn't just go to Jesus because she thought he might heal her. She went in the confidence and belief that he was able to heal her. It's not like she was healed and then believed Jesus could do it. She believed before she even got close to him that he could and that he would. She ascribed the name of healer to him before she received any healing. That is putting great confidence in the person you are giving that name to. Jesus knew who had touched him. He knew before she even thought about doing it. But Jesus doesn't call her out on it because he wants to expose her. No, he wants to highlight her belief. She called him healer before she was healed. That is a great display of faith. We all have some sort of hurt or pain we need healing from. Anything from physical ailments, emotional scarring, addictions, spiritual hurts, the list goes on. We all have some sort of secret shame, just like this woman. And maybe some of us here today in order to take that first step toward healing, need to attribute to Jesus the name of healer before we receive healing. There is so much power in speaking out your faith in his ability to heal. The next name I want to touch on today sounds a bit funny, but it works, so go with me. It's that of author. In Hebrews 12.2, Jesus is described as the author and perfecter of our faith. An author creates their characters, gives them identities, and then provides them a purpose, a meaning or a calling, a reason to exist. Matthew four eighteen to 22, documents one such instance where Jesus provides purpose to a group of men. It says, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon Corpita and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going from there, he saw two brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called to them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So we've got four guys going about their normal working day. They were fishermen, it was the family business. So from a young age, they were probably pretty clear on their purpose. Catch fish, sell fish. And I hazard a guess that maybe they were somewhat satisfied with that life. But then Jesus comes on the scene and he calls to them, asking them to join him in the purpose that he has for them. You were born with purpose, not a purpose. We so often get caught up in this idea that we were created for one thing and one thing only, like We only have one shot to make it in whatever career we feel called to. And if you don't wake up to that calling or you miss the opportunity, then that's it for you. Life of mediocrity, no chance. But Jesus doesn't show us that. He shows us through taking a bunch of guys who were already probably quite content in their vocation of fishermen and provides them with another purpose. And it doesn't stop there because the 12 disciples don't stay disciples just following Jesus around wherever he went. No, they're repurposed again into missionaries and pastors, into prophets, into men charged with, changing, with bringing the good news of Jesus to the world. He, as the ultimate author, provides ultimate purpose to our lives. And it turns out to be the greatest journey. You were born with purpose not a purpose. For those of you who have lost hope in what you thought was your calling or purpose, know that you have not lost your saltiness. Jesus has created you with purpose and it is waiting for you to see that anything is possible in him. For those of you who are in pursuit of a specific calling, know that once you reach that purpose, it doesn't end there. In fact, it's just the beginning of another purpose. Another way that God will use you for his glory. We need to see Jesus for what he is, the author of our lives. And with him writing the story, you know it will be anything but dull. As I mentioned earlier, there, we would be here for days, thoroughly unpacking all that Jesus is. But ultimately, there is one thing, one undeniable trait that he exudes, and it is this, love. It's really hard to pick one act of love because they all, especially the cross, display the depth of his affection for us. We've seen it so beautifully communicated over the past week with Easter. The cross is the greatest act of love. But there is one act I find altogether beautiful and humbling and intimate, and some of us here today need to, need to be reminded of the intimate love of God closer than your breath love of god to feel you are truly seen by him and that he deeply cares despite anything you've done to be refreshed in the depth of his affection for you and to be able to call him my love john 13:1 to 17 it was just before the passover festival jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the father drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you were clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash One another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. So, a bit of cultural context for you. This act of washing feet was was reserved for the most insignificant, most unseen servant of the household. And if there wasn't a low-ranking servant in the household, guests were expected to wash their own dirty feet. The master of the house would never stoop so low as to wash someone else's feet. When I was reading through this passage, two phrases kept sticking out to me. They were uh, verse, one, verse 2, sorry. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And verse 11, For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said, Not everyone was clean. Every time I read those passages, I almost disregarded them. It's like, yep, okay, Jesus knew who was going to betray him, got it. But in those verses is the true way Jesus shows us the depth of his love. Both passages mention that Judas was going to betray Jesus and that Jesus knew that. I think because we live in this post-cross world, we just accept Judas as the bad guy, like he's the naughty disciple. Like I, when I was looking up meaning of names last night, I looked up the name of Judas and one of these websites actually said Judas meaning the apostle who betrayed Jesus. This name is shunned. Literally that's what it said. So we kind of give, you know, Judas this like you're the bad one, you're the bad egg. But is that the way that Jesus saw him? The 12 disciples were not chosen at random. They weren't some guys that Jesus thought were kind of funny, so why not hang out with them for a few weeks? No, he specifically chose each one of them, which means Jesus chose Judas despite knowing he would betray him. And not just that, but Jesus chose to befriend him. He chose to keep Judas in his inner circle of friends. He even chose to wash Judas's feet, something performed by the most insignificant servant of the household. Jesus knew Judas was going to betray him. He knew that in a matter of hours, Judas was somehow going to turn him over to the authorities. And in that moment, there was any number of things Jesus could have done. He could have exposed Judas. He could have kicked him out onto the street. He could have called down the wrath of heaven if he had wanted to. Instead, what does he do? He gets down on both knees, picks up Judas's feet and begins to lovingly wash them. He instead chooses to love Judas. We get it wrong, like all the time. We somehow convince ourselves that because we haven't been a good person, we don't deserve the love of God. Like we don't have a right to call him our love, as if our actions somehow prevent his ability to love us. What we see in this interaction between Jesus and Judas is a love that is far beyond our understanding. Jesus already knows. He already knows every way you are going to fail him. He already knows every way you were already broken, every way you were already hurting, every way you were going to hurt others, every way you're going to hurt him. And he loves you anyway. I pray you see the master of the house comes to you tonight. And instead of doing what you expect him to do or what he rightfully should do, I pray you see him lovingly kneeling down in front of you, washing your feet. Who do you say I am? It's a simple question, but the answer is exceptionally powerful we can ascribe to Jesus the names he embodies and is worthy of, then we are reminding ourselves of who Jesus is, what he is capable of, and who he is to us. We have seen the depths of his his love and we have experienced the width of his grace and have found in him purpose, not because he talked a good game, but because in all that he did whilst here on earth, he lived it out. It was an overflow of his heart. So what name do you need to call out tonight? Is it healer or father or Lord? What are you in need of from Jesus today? His grace, his forgiveness, his love? Who do you say Jesus is? My answer to that question doesn't matter to you. And it doesn't matter the person on your left or the person on your right. Their answers don't matter to you. The only answer that matters is yours. Who do you say he is? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can call on you, that there are a myriad of names that we have to refer to you to remind ourselves of who you are and all that you are. Lord, I pray for every single person here tonight who is struggling to call you by a certain name. Jesus, I pray, God, that you show them that it is okay, that it is possible, and that you are waiting for them to refer to you in that name. I pray, God, that we wouldn't shy away, that we would be bold in our faith and bold in speaking out your name because there is no other name. And I pray all of this in your holy name. Amen.